All right, here we go, the first episode proper of The Garden Pod. Great to have you with us. This is a podcast from Garden International School in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, looking at leadership, looking at learning, and every now and again we turn to just general things in life um, which we might find interesting. This is episode one, and what we're going to be looking at today is data. So if that floats your boat, carry on listening. We're talking to a gentleman called Matthew Savage, who is an expert in data. He's done a doctorate on the subject, and he's really interested in how we in schools can use data and the triangulation of data to help students with their progress, but interestingly, also their well-being. This was recorded at 21st Century Learning Conference in Hong Kong, um, and I managed to grab him and sit him down, and he, he spoke for about half an hour. Matthew has his own website, which is the MonaLisaEffect.org, um, and has also written a fair bit of stuff on the web, which you can look up. Um, I think this is an interesting chat, really good for any teachers out there, really, who want to focus on how we can better use data um, to inform our own practice. Enough of me. Episode one, I give you Matthew Savage. Okay, we're coming to you today from Hong Kong at the 21st Century Learning Conference and we're sitting looking over the Hong Kong Bay uh, and we're very lucky in that uh, Mr. Matthew Savage has agreed to talk to us. Now, I went to Matthew's session this morning um, on triangulation of data and had a chat with him at the end and said, you know, do you mind talking to us? And he's very kindly giving up some of his time. Um, so, Matthew, maybe you could introduce yourself. Uh, I know that you're a principal at Oman International School. Yeah, well, I'm at the International Community School of Oman. I'm acting principal there. and um, I was talking today about something that's really close to my heart, the, the potential of data to transform kids' lives, essentially. Yeah. You know, um, many of us who come from, say, from the UK, we're, we're used to data being a stick with which we're beaten uh, daily by, by government or, or targets. But what I'm energized by is the fact that data can be so much more than that. It can be something really beautiful. It can be something that, that focuses very much on the individual student. And, and key for me, it can be something that dynamizes both learning and well-being. And as we were saying earlier on, what else is there to a school yeah. than learning and well-being? And, well-being. and I think you were probably the first person, unbelievably actually, probably the first person who's, who's really made that explicit that link when talking about data when I've ever been to those sessions before and that really sort of struck a chord with me and to give the listeners a bit of context you, you kind of know what you're talking about now you're, you're currently doing a doctorate I started my doctorate a couple of years ago under the great uh, professor Stephen Heppler and I'm looking at attitudes to learning amongst different student groups around the world and how those attitudes are informed by are shaped by are molded by the whole triangle of data yeah so can we just drill down that in, into that a little bit? Because that's really the sort of the crux of everything, isn't it? This triangle. Um, and I'm sure our teachers from, from Garden will be, will be sort of quite comfortable with this, but the three elements of the triangle, would you just like to explain those for yeah, us? Yeah, schools have been using the attainment point on that triangle for 50, 100 years. You know, we, we drown our kids in, in attainment data the whole time, don't we? But, but for me, the attainment data is absolutely meaningless until we also understand the child's aptitude, their potential. So the second point on the triangle is a child's aptitude. We measure that uh, with the CAT4 from, from GL, which gives us a really robust and, and rich cognitive profile of every single child. 
But even that is only part of the jigsaw if we don't also have information on the child's attitudes to learning, the emotional baggage, if you like, that they bring with them to school every single day. And without an understanding of which, there's pretty much nothing that we can do in order to catalyze the learning. Yeah, we, were, we mentioned in the session a couple of other people in that session that this morning were talking about how that attitudinal stuff really really does add a, a, a massive new dimension to the, the conversation about kids and what's going on there, doesn't it? It, it does. It brings it all together, yeah. you know. It brings it all together. We, we're, you know, every year we will see kids who are underachieving and then we as a school often decide they simply need more work or they need more lessons or they need tutoring, whatever else. Whereas oftentimes it's not that at all. It's because their confidence or their metacognition or their self-regard or just their feelings about school or about their teachers, those are the things that are fragile. Those are the things that need to be bolstered and enhanced in order for their science results, for example, to go up. Yeah. And I mean, the last thing I want to do is put put words in your mouth, so just correct me at any stage. But um, that triangle is really only valid as a triangle, isn't it? If you take any any one of those in isolation. That's totally right. If you take any of those one things on their own or you take any of those one things out, then the whole thing falls apart. We as teachers need to know where a kid is at, where they could be, and what is the reason why those two things are different. So each part of the triangle is essential. And for me, it's aiming towards what I like to call the Mona Lisa effect. The Mona Lisa effect for me is... um, it goes back to an anecdote from my own honeymoon 20 years ago and seeing um, Lisa Gerardini's uh, picture on the wall of the, the Louvre. And just like her eyes look at everybody who enters that room, I think that real personalised learning looks at every single child in the classroom. And yet if we don't understand their data triangle, we can't even pretend that the Mona Lisa effect is vaguely possible. Yeah. And something you said... which. I- I don't think it's controversial because I really don't think it is, but um, but I think it's something that many teachers would feel pretty uncomfortable with when they first hear it. And I do agree with you is this idea of, I know a kid. And when we hear, uh, or I as a teacher, I know that kid really well. And you, you sort of challenge that a little bit. And I wonder if you wouldn't mind just sharing why. I think I challenge it completely, not okay. just a little bit. Um, I've been teaching for 20 years. I know my stuff. I'm a really good teacher. But I don't know my kids any more than I know most of the adults that I meet. Because... Children these days are subject to so many contradictory pressures, whether as a second language learner, whether as a teenager, whether as as someone growing up within Southeast Asia and the the emphasis that is put on face and reputation. You know, there are so many reasons for kids to wear masks and they wear them very well. Mm. So for any of us to pretend that we know our kids without the information the data gives us is, I think, a little bit naive. I understand why teachers say that and the relationships they forge with their kids are very important, but they're only part relationships and it's only partial knowledge until they have that whole data triangle to help inform what they thought they knew before. And that not knowing is okay, isn't it? It's just... It's exciting. It's It's absolutely fine. It's it's, it's totally fine, totally okay. But it should fuel and fire um, a quest to know more because the better that we know each individual kid, the better we can empower them to shape their own learning. 
Yeah, and you use the analogy, first time I've ever heard it actually of a landberg. And we're used to this iceberg analogy, aren't you? But it's the same principle, right? You only, I don't know, you used Uluru as the. Yeah. That's, a, that's an interesting story in itself. Exactly. What, yeah. I'd always known that, that Uluru, that Ez Rock, was this large flat rock just sitting on, on the desert in the centre of Australia. And what I learned when I visited there was that that's not true. Nine million years it used to be, and it was flipped 90 degrees. And so what we see is the tip of a rockberg. And when I saw that, it struck me that that's what these kids are. We, we think we can see the top we think that they're just lying flat on the desert of our school environment if you like yeah. um, but actually they are the tip of a rock bug that goes so far down it's our duty it's our, our imperative and our obligation to dig deeper and find out what lies beneath yeah and that brings us on to naturally I think onto the question of how do we do that and that's sort of the, the golden question for school leaders and for teachers around around the world really isn't it so we're probably going to, like you did in your session, I think we're probably going to leave attainment to one side because I think that's the most comfortable that teachers Absolutely. Um, and, you, and you were very clear on that and I think that's, that's bang on. Um, but let's go into that aptitudinal stuff. So at our school we use, I, I'll wait for your eyebrows to rise here, we use CAP4 but then we use CHEM for the kind of the high school. Um, which is something that we'll probably look at. But so, so I think our teachers are familiar with, with what it is. Um, but I think you, you were able to show us these quadrants, and I'll let you explain it because you do, you'll do it way better than me, but these four quadrants of the types of things we might be able to expect to see using the aptitudinal data. And I wondered if you could... Um, try. It's quite difficult without the visuals, isn't it? But I wonder if you could try and explain. No, ab- absolutely. This. And a lot of secondary schools use CHEM. Chem. The CHEM products are really, really popular. I think increasingly schools are realising that um, using the same suite, the right the way through from um, early years up to year 13 makes yeah. a lot more sense. And I was alluding to that. Um, yeah. And I think that's why more schools are using the CAP4. For, for me, the CAP4 enables me to, to, yes, to approach kids in terms of one of four quadrants. Mm-hmm. It's not to suggest that kids are a category. But if we're trying to personalise learning, for say a thousand children you don't go straight from a thousand to one if you can go from a thousand to 250 then it's still personalizing it gradually and I look at kids in terms of four quadrants comparing both the verbal and non-verbal batteries out of the CAT4 test so one quadrant would be quadrant A these are the kids whose verbal score is high but their non-verbal score is low and would you mind just Verbal, just explaining verbal for us. Sure. Uh, a child's verbal aptitude is their ability to think through words. In English, because uh, we're all here, you and I, dealing in English medium schools, but their verbal aptitude is a, a cognitive battery that looks at their thinking skills within language, their ability to process words and think through words. And those quadrant A kids are those who are very competent at thinking through words, but thinking through concepts and ideas non-verbally is more of a challenge for them. They're, if you like, uh, word-rich and idea poor. Um, the quadrant B... Can I interrupt course, for a sec? Yeah. Because you made a fascinating point about this area of the world and where we teach in garden and, and quadrant A. Um, and well, you haven't got so many quadrant A kids um, here in Southeast Asia. Quadrant A kids are prevalent um, in white working class communities in the UK, okay. in India, in Nigeria, in Indian schools in the Middle East, etc., um, there's one particular quadrant that's very prevalent uh, with you guys, which yeah. is the fourth of the, of the four. Okay. The second one, quadrant B, is hi-hi. These are kids who are like a steam train. As long as you put enough coal on their fire, they will go fast and strong. Yeah. Quadrant C, very interesting. They're the kids who have a low verbal and a low non-verbal. And often without the data, they're harder to spot, especially in environments such as yours at Garden, mm. where if a kid comes in without very much English, instantly it's assumed that they are an EAL or an ESL or an ELL kid. 
But actually, for many of them, they might struggle equally much if they were learning through their mother tongue. Yeah. So to identify those quadrant C kids who are low, low, is a way to flag further investigations in terms of their learning needs and learning difficulties. Mm. Quadrant D is the one, I think, to which you were alluding. I was alluding to mistakenly. <laughs> yeah. So quadrant D is the kids who have a high nonverbal capacity, a high nonverbal capability, whereas a low verbal score. Yes. These are the kids whose, whose language, whose ability to think through words is like a, a tortoise kind of um, just languishing behind uh, the hair of their conceptual knowledge. These are kids who conceptually are very, very strong. Their brain is going fast and high all the time, but they just don't have the language to keep up with it. And unless we recognize those quadrant D kids, mm. what happens typically in Southeast Asia is that the boys start to play the fool, they start to entertain because they can't get that ascendancy that yeah. teenage boys need yeah. through language, they do it through entertaining. Yeah. And the girls, they become invisible, they just don't want to be asked anything, they want to just disappear into the background. Yeah. And yet those very kids, those quadrant D boys and girls, could be the kids who excel beyond all expectations yeah. when they finish their school journey at the end of their time. So can you go back to quadrant A? And one of the things I'm definitely going to do with, with our leadership team at Back at Garden is, is start to go through that data as soon as I get back and, and see if we can do this. I think it'd be a really interesting exercise. Can you give us some of the sort of things we'd expect to see in the quadrant A kids? The quadrant A kids, a kids specifically. Yeah, yeah. Um, quadrant A kids are very quick to talk. They will often dominate conversation. They will write a lot. But when you dig deeper in what they write, the substance may not be there. And when you listen carefully to what they say, it may be lacking in that profundity. They often find it hard to reflect. Um, and I'm generalizing here with all yeah, of this, of course, you know. Yeah, yeah. But they often find it hard to reflect because they speak first and think later. And often they can be overestimated uh, by their teachers, which can be damaging to their own self-esteem and well-being. Because they have language on their side, especially in Southeast Asia where many kids don't, they are assumed to be, in inverted commas, the clever one. Yeah. Uh, whereas actually they may be struggling in ways that we just don't realize. Yeah, so it's sort of hidden. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that's, I think that's the other thing. Some of these assumptions that we make, you, you really drove home in the session that that can be really quite damaging for, for a long, long period of time. I think both ways. If we expect far too much, I'm sure I believe in growth mindset, but if we expect far too much of a child, then they're constantly going to feel like they're inadequate. Yeah. But similarly, if we expect far too little of a child, then they will, it'll put this, this ceiling on their aspirations for the rest of their lives. Yeah. So understanding exactly where a child's potential begins, not using it as a straitjacket, because kids can defy expectations all the time, but, but not containing it in the first place can unleash their potential to grow and to become whatever they can be rather than limiting it at the outset. Yeah, and having that knowledge is power. Yeah, right? absolutely. And if we interpret it in the right way, we can we can do good things. Um, can we just layer on the attitudinal stuff then? Because that gives it a whole new dimension. Maybe talk about in your experience. And to give some context to this, you've worked in... Well, you've, you've worked around the world, haven't you? You've worked in Nigeria, you talked about I've worked in, in Austria, I've worked in, um, in Brunei Jerusalem, in, in Thailand, I've done research in Nigeria and in Spain and in Japan and in India. So um, lots of the uh, conclusions I've drawn have, have been from investigations right around the world. Yeah. yeah. So when you add in this attitudinal stuff and, and you're using past data yes. currently, which is the same as we use at Garden, um, so tell, tell me how you're using that and how, you're, how these pieces sort of fit together. 
well, we're, we're using it in a, a in a kind of rudimentary and routine way, much as many schools do to start with, where we're gathering that data on every single kid from our reception class right up to our year 13s every single year, yeah. like I'm sure you do. Yeah. And then we're able to flag those kids who seem to be vulnerable or a, a level of critical need under any of those particular batteries. So that's that's pretty much as you're using it as well, I would imagine. But we're also looking at wherever we can correlate and compare the past data with other batteries within the past and also with cognitive batteries within the Cat4. We're looking at different um, past profiles as well. I'm very interested in seeing when, for instance, a child has a very high past two and past three. So they seem to have very positive uh, sometimes uh, very high perception of self. Yeah. But if you then look at those same kids and see their past one, their past five, and their past eight, which are all the external past measures, oftentimes those are much, much lower. So then we have a, a kid who I would say is experiencing what I would call schooling disconnect. Yes. They they um, internally and intrapersonally, they, they feel very positively, but on the externals, they mm. uh, are more fragile. You can flip that and see the kids um, who are very, very high for one and five and eight, but very low for two and three. Those kids almost have a self-disconnect, you know? Mm. They, anything external, this is quite common in Southeast Asia, isn't it? Anything mm. external, the adult world is great, but themselves, really, really not so. Yeah. And I've also done a lot of work looking at a kid's perceived learning capability uh, in relation to their non-verbal and spatial mean out of the cap four. Because if you strip away the clutter of verbal and quantitative um, aptitude, and you're left with a kid's conceptual ability. It's, it's quite scary in Southeast Asia, the number of times where the data will suggest a child is exceptionally able. But because they make the correlation purely with their quantitative and with their verbal aptitude, they feel they have nothing to offer academically whatsoever. Mm. So the more you correlate um, all of the different data sets that you have, which is all about triangulation, yeah. isn't it? The richer an understanding you get of the kid and their needs. And then you created the, yeah, this analogy, which I really liked, about a beach and flags on a beach. And I wonder if yeah. that seems the right time to talk about that. Yeah, I, I think so. Um, well, there's no beach out there in <laughs> Hong Kong Harbour. Um, the problem that we have in schools is that many teachers are understandably um, data-phobic, understandably cynical of, of data, you know, either because they, in inverted commas, know their children or because they're used to data being a cold weapon yeah. uh, rather than, uh, than a fire that burns bright. And, and some warm. of the language around data, I mean, even some of the language you were just using there is, is quite intimidating, isn't it? I think it really is. And so one of the key things is to really make teachers realise that the data isn't a weapon the data is a tool in order to unleash things for an individual kid. And the more it comes down to the narrative of a child's life as it emerges, it's harder to be cynical about it. But what I also say to my staff is that all of this data is just flags on a beach. And we just need to give teachers the shovel to dig wherever those flags happen to be. So if the data suggests that this or this or this might be the case, then it's time for us to validate it. It's time for us to dig deep and see whether there is other evidence that will back that up. Yeah. It shows that data is only part of the picture, but data is there, if you like, as a treasure map. And I talk a lot about treasure maps and teachers as treasure hunters. The data is there to enable us to dig deeper and see what treasure we might find. And if you frame it in those terms, it's kind of hard to be cynical about it, I think. Yeah, and um, I think we talked at the end, didn't we, about allowing the right conversations to happen. And um, it's not a word I like, but we talk a lot in schools about interventions. 
Um, and I think that always sounds much more severe than what we often mean by interventions, by sort of, you know, uh, using stuff that we've got, knowledge that we've got, information that we've got to have the right conversation or do the right thing. And, and everything I saw in this morning's session was having more, more information to make the right decisions. And I think that's a good lesson for Yeah, us. so that whatever we're doing, we're doing for the right reasons. Yeah. And we're doing it because it's informed by all of the hard and soft data that we have. Yeah. And I just want to bring, before we finish, I just want to bring that back to this what you said right at the start was this is about progress academic progress but equal equally it's about well-being it is and for, for me the only way that this works in my school is by us having this as a major in fact main focus and, and one of the difficulties in many schools is that they have so many main foci don't they you know and therefore it becomes impossible to prioritize a dozen different things mm. but the reason I am 100% comfortable in prioritizing student level data and the data triangle is because at its core at its heart are two things learning and well-being and for me, there is nothing more that school is about. Yeah. So if I have something that focuses entirely on learning and well-being, I'm totally comfortable with this being most of what we do in our CPL, in our staff training, and in our professional development. Yeah. Uh, Matthew, thank you. I mean, I, I literally could talk about this with you for uh, for another hour, but I don't think I don't think I will subject you to that. Um, Matthew would be happy for people to contact you further or, or schools to contact you absolutely and I'm always keen to connect and, and I've got a website as well on monalisaeffect.me and I'm happy to connect with any learners and any um, educators around the world I think that's how we make uh, the Mona Lisa effect happen in every school which yeah. is surely should be our goal and you're on Twitter as well I think at, I'm at, at, at Savage, Savage Education, Education. I'm, I'm fledgling on Twitter I need yeah. to get better at that right, we'll I'm see there can, anyway we'll see if we can boost your numbers <laughs> on Twitter um, so once again thank you so much um Really, that maybe that is just the tip of the Landberg for us, uh, but I think you've given a lot of us a lot to think about. Great session this morning, really enjoyed it, and um, appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Thank you.